Last year, we had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to study the Lord's Prayer. And we began with this incredible juxtaposition of our Father in heaven. You know, we say this phrase a lot, we pray it a lot, hopefully, and it often, I think, because of the familiarity, loses its power. It's as if I was having a conversation with one of you and I dropped my father, the president, or my father, the Apollo 11 astronaut. You know, if I said something like that, you would probably pause for a minute and do a double take. You'd have the reaction of, your father is someone unique and special, perhaps someone important. And when we pray our Father in heaven, we, all of us, ought to have a similar response. We ought to pause for a minute and reflect on what we are saying because we are addressing someone who is far more unique, far more special, far more powerful. This address, our Father in heaven, should recall this duality, this duality, this sense of nearness, of closeness, of, of kinship, that we say when we say our Father, we all have had fathers, we all know of fathers, we know what that entails. We should recall that in the same breath in which we say in heaven, which reflects, which indicates God's eminence, his supremacy, his greatness, his power. This salutation, our Father in heaven, is really a confession. It's a confession that the one we come before is someone who understands our smallest concerns, who understands what it is like to walk in our shoes, who cares for even these of our smallest concerns. And yet, this is the same person who is the master of the universe, the person who can and does bend time and matter, space and circumstance to work his good will in our lives. And then after we pray our Father in heaven, we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And these two supplications also go together. Because when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we're praying for it to be set apart. Set apart certainly from the everyday parts of life, from the, the normal parts, from the busyness, from the commonality, the grime to be set apart from those who would use God's name as an expletive or an exclamation mark. But we're not only praying, we shouldn't only be praying for God's name to be set apart from those bad things. We should be praying for God's name to be set apart from everything, from those things that we see as good and lovely, from our own names, from our own reputations, for his name to truly be unique, to be so much higher than anything else in this universe. And friends, the only way that we can really pray that way, we can really pray for his name to be set apart this way, the way that John the Baptist put it, he must become greater, I must become less. The only way that we can really pray that is if we pray for his kingdom to come, for his kingdom to come in our hearts, for our hearts to be changed for us to recognize and to exalt his name. We must pray that if what is required for his name to be exalted is for us to go through trials, to be debased, to be stigmatized in society, we're praying that these things would be worth it. We would see these things as worth it if the end result is the glorification of his name.
You know, the early apostles had this perspective. They were hauled before the court in their day, not because of something bad they had done in society, but their response in the midst of this injustice was to rejoice because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They valued the name of Jesus so highly, they wanted it to be exalted, to be set apart, that they were comfortable, not only comfortable, but rejoicing that it took their trials, their tribulations, for his name to be exalted. And this too, friends, should be our prayer when we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And so this morning we come to the part of the Lord's Prayer where we pray for our needs, which is what we have the privilege of looking at today. And so if you're able, I invite you to turn to the prayer that Jesus gave us, which is recorded in the book of Luke. It's found in Luke chapter 11, the first four verses. And again, this is um, Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 1. This is the word of God. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and to lead us not into temptation. Father, thank you for teaching us how we ought to pray. Teach us also we ask to pray these words as you intended, not out of repetition or habit merely, but to truly ask what you intended us to ask for. Increase our understanding, change our hearts where that is necessary to desire what you have ordained as good and as best. For Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. More than a decade ago, Rebecca and I had the opportunity to pray alongside some dear friends of ours, and um, these friends of ours were expecting their first child. Like um, any of you who have had children before knows, um, there are the normal everyday um, anxieties, concerns that you have when you're going through a pregnancy, but in this case, there was nothing that was particularly significant from their perspective, nothing that was significant enough that um, they were sharing any concerns with their friends. Um, and so they, they went through the pregnancy, they came to the 26-week the mark, and the mom went in for one of these routine medical appointments. And again, um, she had some questions, but there was nothing that was particularly concerning um, from, from her perspective, nothing that they had shared as a prayer request with their friends. Um, but when this mom went in for this 26-week this medical appointment, the doctor came in and everything changed uh, for her and changed very fast. Um, this mom was, was diagnosed with a advanced form of preeclampsia. And for those of you who don't know what preeclampsia is, it results in, in very high, dangerously high blood pressure. Um, it, can, it can actually result in organ failure for the mom, um, damage to the heart and to other organs. It can result in loss of blood for the baby. Um, it can literally put the mom and the baby um, at risk of death. And so this, this mom who had gone in for this 26-week 
what she thought was a routine medical appointment was immediately transferred from this doctor's office to the local hospital for an emergency C-section. You know, she hadn't even packed a change of clothes when she went in for that routine medical appointment. And so it was that our friend's baby was born at 26 weeks. And I remember um, the pictures from that time. The most striking was a picture of this baby literally in her father's hand from, from head to, to foot. This, this little girl fit within her father's hand. She was, she was that small. And like any of you who has experienced an ICU unit, a neonatal ICU unit, can attest, I remember the environment in which this girl existed because she was surrounded by the most advanced medical technology really available anywhere in the world. Um, the machines, the contraptions, the medicines, certainly the medical staff around her. This entire environment was built to save, to extend life, and yet, Despite every advantage that modern medicine could offer, I remember from that time the sense day by day of, of our complete and utter helplessness. We knew that the odds were not great that this, this very little girl would survive. There was nothing that we could do, no amount of willpower, no amount of force, or love or desire, even for a parent um, to their child, none of this would change this girl's trajectory. We knew that the only one who could affect this girl's life, who could save this girl's life, was our Father in Heaven. And so we did pray. We prayed very earnestly. Um, th these friends of ours um, were actually involved in politics, and um, they literally began a campaign um, among their friends, among their friends' friends, to pray for this girl's life. They shared her story. They shared photos of this girl. They reminded us again and again to go before our Father in prayer, to pray for what the medical community told us was not terribly likely to happen. And we did pray. We prayed day by day, and day by day, this very tiny little girl pulled it out, again, against the odds. And ultimately, she survived, she thrived. Today, she's a healthy young woman. If you looked at her, you would have no idea that she had had such a close brush with death. The reason I'm sharing this story, none of you know this girl, none of you know the particulars, is that even though you don't know this girl, I think most of you can empathize with how we approached our God in prayer during that crisis. Even though you don't know this specific situation, you all get that in a situation like this, we don't have the ability to affect the trajectory of the events. You know, in the world's eyes, in a crisis like this, it's up to the doctors and up to chance. Some people make it and, and some people don't. And there's a sense that you would do anything you could if you could affect the situation. You would pay someone any amount, you would travel any distance, you would stay up all night and beyond. You would perhaps even trade places with that person in the hospital bed if any of these things would affect this person's life. But you can't do these things, and so you've prayed. You've prayed passionately. You've prayed with conviction that God would save this person's life. You've pleaded with him for his grace on this person's life. And I think the way that we pray in a crisis like this 
conveys more accurately how we ought to pray all of the time than how we actually do pray. And the reason I'd submit to you is in the words that Jesus gives us in this Lord's Prayer, the specific words that he tells us to pray. Again, we've, we've prayed this prayer so often, we've read it so often, that I think we often glaze over the specifics, the depth and the power of what Jesus is telling us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. After confessing our Father's love for us, his ability to do anything, to bring about his will in our lives, after praying that our hearts would be changed so that his name would be set apart, would become greater, Jesus tells us to pray, give us each day our daily bread. There's a sense, I think, when we pray this, give us each day our daily bread, that this is poetical, it's a figure of speech, that daily bread is a picturesque way of praying for everything that we need in life to be comfortable, or at least everything we need for basic subsistence, for our jobs, our livelihoods, for our health, for our friends and family, perhaps even for our comforts, for our status in society. And friends, Jesus does care for our every need. You'll recall that his first miracle, in fact, was a miracle to address really what was an everyday problem of not having enough refreshment at a wedding banquet. You know, in the broad scheme of things, if that wedding had run out of wine and Jesus had not acted, you have to ask, would that couple, would that community really have been all that much worse off? We don't know the answer to that, but what we do know is that Jesus decided to act, and he, of course he could act, he acted miraculously in that circumstance, in a very pedestrian circumstance. And Jesus met so many other needs during his time on earth. He met needs from the run-of-the-mill ailments, like a fever, to severe medical conditions, like blindness. And so it's true that Jesus cares for both our small needs and our big needs, that we should bring both of these before him in prayer. But let me take us back again to the text that we're looking at this morning, because Jesus' words, his instructions here are intentional. And what he tells us to pray for is, give us each day our daily bread. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, I don't think that Jesus was using our daily bread simply as a metaphor, as a figure of speech. And let me tell you why. For starters, he tells us to pray this on a daily basis. He's not telling us to pray for a job or a revenue stream that will give us our daily bread for the next few weeks or months or years or life. He's telling us to pray this on a daily, on a daily basis, to pray for our daily bread. And elsewhere, Jesus tells us again not to worry about tomorrow. And when he tells us that, he's talking quite literally he says we shouldn't worry about what we're going to eat tomorrow. He says we shouldn't worry about what we're going to drink tomorrow. He tells us not to worry about what we will wear tomorrow. And all of this makes sense if, in fact, we are to pray each day for our daily bread. So let me ask you this question. Do you feel like you really need to pray for your daily bread? You know, if I'm being honest, 
I generally don't. Um, I have my own concerns and cares in life for sure, but daily bread, actual daily bread, is not generally one of those. The budget might be tight at times, sure, but I don't really worry about running out of food. Um, even if we had to adjust our lifestyle, even if we had to adjust it dramatically, you know, I'm in a fairly comfortable place. I have a livelihood, I have savings if I ran out of my job, even if I ran out of savings, I live in a place where I have family members, I have a church community, um, there's the government social safety net, and for many of you in this congregation, I suspect that you would probably say the same. I think what we miss, what, what I miss, is this sense of, of helplessness, of vulnerability, of true need. We've outgrown our reliance on God, at least for the everyday, day-to-day -day needs of life. And I think what Jesus is telling us here in this prayer to pray, give us each day our daily bread, is that we ought to approach him with this same perspective, the same perspective that we use when we approach him for the big things in life, the friend or the family member in the ICU. Now let me be clear, I don't think this is a natural response. We live in a society that has advanced from the Jewish society of the first century, but even in that society, even though that was a more agrarian society without the financial and industrial developments of, of modern Western society, even in that society, I suspect that many people didn't really need to worry about their daily bread. Because we know from contemporary historical accounts that Jesus lived in a functioning society. It was a society in which there were generally working food and employment systems. This was not a failed state like Mogadishu in the 1990s where there was widespread famine. And yet, despite living in this society, Jesus told his hearers then, he tells us today, nevertheless, to, to pray this, give us each day our daily bread. So let me ask you to recall again that time that you may have been in a crisis situation, either you or you were praying for a close family member or a friend. And let me ask you to recall again how you felt your reliance on God, your realization that there was nothing that you could do in that circumstance. There was nothing you could do to change that person's life. You know, I think Jesus instructs us to pray this way about our daily bread because it's an acknowledgement, it's a recognition that this little thing, our daily bread, our daily sustenance, this is just as much in God's power. When we have daily bread, when we have bread for today, we're too obtuse most of the time, I think, to recognize it for what it is. A miracle that but for the grace and power of our Father in heaven would not exist. These things are normal only because his love and his grace are so repetitive and so consistent. Jesus then tells us to pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. I would submit to you that a problem we often have when we pray this, forgive us our sins, is that we don't approach this either with the same sense of need or desperation as we do our bigger physical needs. 
You know, if we lived in a part of the world today that is experiencing actual famine, a place like Burkina Faso or Mali or South Sudan, where today boys and girls, men and women, are literally dying because they don't have enough food to eat. If we lived in a place like this, I think our prayer for daily bread would look a whole lot different. We would recognize our need, our real need, for God's intervention and grace in our lives. And what Jesus tells us in his instruction about how we ought to pray is that this prayer, the second prayer to forgive us our sins, goes right alongside with our need for daily bread, that our need for forgiveness is as essential to life as is daily bread. The reason I I don't think we typically pray this way for the forgiveness of our sins is that the same reason, really, that we don't really pray for our daily bread. It's that we're obtuse, that we underappreciate God's providence in supplying our daily bread, and so do we undervalue our need for God's forgiveness. And the reason is that we don't see our sins, our daily sins, maybe we did at one point when we became Christians, but we don't see our daily sins for how enormous they are, how impossible it would be for anyone to forgive us, anyone except God alone. We treat our sins, our daily sins, as not such a big deal. Jesus told another story to illustrate this point about a man who owed what in today's currency would be the equivalent of about $4 billion. Now, imagine this. This man had borrowed so much money that he could have purchased an NFL football team. He could have purchased the World Trade Center. He could have purchased about 40 of the most advanced fighter jets in the U.S. military. And he couldn't pay this money back. Again, he owed about $4 billion. In fact, not only could he not pay this money back, but his idea for trying to make up this enormous $4 billion deficit was to hound someone who owed him the equivalent of about $6,000. You know, Jesus told this story to illustrate for us how we ought to forgive our brothers and sisters who are more like that man who owed him about $6,000. But what Jesus' parable also tells us is who we're like. We're like the man who owed the $4 billion. That's what our sin is like in God's eyes. It's enormous, it's grotesque, it's appallingly great. It's truly unfathomable and incomprehensible to us. There's no way for us to imagine, to recognize, to appreciate how great our sins are, how enormous, how impossible it is for anyone to forgive except God alone. And if we can begin to appreciate this more each day, I think we'll begin to pray the Lord's Prayer as he intended, with passion, with fervency, with a pleading like those men who asked for forgiveness for their monetary debts. We can comprehend what it means to owe the bank money. We often forget how much we're in God's debt. Now, don't get me wrong. We should take immense comfort, immense comfort in the promises of Scripture that God will forgive our sins if we go before him and ask. But this reality, this promise, this fact that God will forgive our sins should never dull our senses to the enormity and the unnaturalness of this gift, of how much we need our Lord's forgiveness, 
of how great and special and sweet it is when we are forgiven. To use the analogy that Jesus used each day that we pray this, each day that we pray for our sins to be forgiven and we are forgiven, it's as though we've won an enormous jackpot. We know how absurdly abnormal it would be to be gifted $4 billion. And Jesus tells us that this is what it's like for us every single day. And yet, we often go about our lives as though it's the most normal thing ever. Friends, Jesus is calling us in this prayer to wake up, to open our eyes, to, to the, see the enormousness of our need, to see the greatness of what he is giving. He then tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. This is one of those passages that can initially be confusing because elsewhere in Scripture, we're assured that God does not tempt anyone. That's what James writes in his letter. He says, James says, we're um, tempted when we are dragged away by our own evil desires. And so how do we square these two statements? How do we square the statement in this prayer to to pray, lead us not into temptation, with the promise that God does not tempt anyone. Well, as one commentator put it, God sends trials into our life. The Bible tells us that very clearly. And these trials are designed to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith and our reliance on him. But we, because of our sin, often turn these trials into temptations when we respond inappropriately. And so this prayer, this prayer to lead us not into temptation, is really a prayer like this. Do not lead me into those places where I will be dragged away by my own evil desires. Let me give an example from Scripture. The night before our Lord went to the cross, he went to a place place called Gethsemane and, and took with him Peter and some of the other disciples, and he told them to keep watch there. Of course, it was evening. They had just had dinner. And Jesus was gone for about an hour, and so Peter and the others uh, fall asleep. And when Jesus comes back, he wakes them up, and he says, watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. Now, let me repeat that, because it's easy for us to gloss over, to not really hear what Jesus said. He said, watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. Well, Peter doesn't do this. He falls back asleep, and I'll fast forward through the story. Jesus is arrested. He's taken Um, before the leader, um, the high priest, and and Peter decides to follow him. And when Peter does that, he follows Jesus into a place of enormous temptation, where Peter has to choose between his own physical security and his loyalty to Christ. On three occasions, the people who are standing there, the people who work for this high priest, the high priest who has been involved in the arrest of Jesus, they accuse Peter of being one of Jesus' disciples, and each time Peter denies it. Now, let me take you back to what Jesus had told Peter to pray for just a few hours before. Jesus had said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now, we don't know what would have happened had Peter obeyed, had he prayed that he would not fall into temptation. But what we have is a sobering example of what happened when Peter didn't pray. He came into a situation when he was tempted, whereas James might have put it, he was dragged away by his own evil desire to esteem his physical security higher 
than the name of Jesus. What Jesus is telling us in the Lord's Prayer when we, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, is this. Do not lead me into those places where I will be dragged away by my own evil desires. Peter, for us, should be a cautionary tale, a very real cautionary example. You know, there's no indication in the Gospels that Peter considered that Jesus' initial instructions in that garden to be all that important. It may not be that he thoughtfully or willfully or intentionally decided to ignore his master's command to watch and pray, but he didn't consider it so significant, so real, so immediate, as to force himself to stay awake, to pray this as if his life, as if his very soul depended upon it. You know, I'm afraid that we often respond to the Lord's Prayer with the same lackadaisical approach that Peter did. We might pray, lead us not into temptation, but we do so perfunctorily without really thinking about it, without really meaning it. Let me remind you of what comes right before this, because when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we've just prayed for our daily bread. We've asked our Father to forgive us our sins. And somehow with these things, when we stop and think about it, we recognize how much we really do rely on God for these. We recognize that we really are completely dependent on God for our basic necessities of life. We recognize when we stop and think about it, the enormity of our sins, of how much we rely on God for atoning for each one of these. But we lose sight of the fact, I think, that we are just as desperately in need of God's protection from temptation. For if we are tempted when we are dragged away by our own evil desires, then this prayer to lead us not into temptation is a prayer to be moored to the Holy Spirit, to be moored to him and to not be dragged away. We must wake up, friends, to the reality that the riptide of sin is very real is very near, and is completely life-threatening. Pray like Peter ought to have prayed that night, that you will not in your own strength enter a place where you disown your Lord. Let me close with this thought. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, and especially when we pray these three petitions, I think we often make our request to God with the wrong attitude. It's an attitude like this, Honey, would you be able to load the dishwasher tonight? It's an attitude, sure, we're asking something, but we're asking something that in our minds and in our hearts is something very small. We're asking for something that, sure, would be nice, but frankly, our worlds won't really change that much if these things aren't answered. That's the way that we often approach these requests in the Lord's Prayer. And what Jesus is teaching us, I think, is to appreciate the enormity of what we really need. The way we appreciate it when we have a friend or a family member in the ICU. Our need for his miraculous intervention in providing even the most basic necessities of life, our daily bread. Our need for his incredible forgiveness for our sins day by day because of how enormous, how grotesque, how big they are our desperate need for his loving providence and care in keeping us from those places where, but for his protection, 
we will be dragged away by our own evil desires. Our asks, friends, our real asks need to be bigger, not smaller. Our prayers need to be with more passion, with more conviction. Until we begin to appreciate more accurately our great needs, we will not pray with the fervency and the urgency that our Lord intended. So pray that he will open your eyes. He will open your eyes to your great need and to his even greater love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our Father in heaven. Thank you for being the one who came to earth to save us. Thank you for being the one who does provide for our basic needs, the basic needs of life, for the one who has forgiven our sins, and Father, the one who keeps us close to you. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to pray these things day by day, that we would never be lulled into a sense of safety apart from you, but that we would see the need that we have for you each day. And Father, that we would see through that the great love that you give to us day by day. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.